Welcome to the Tinnitus Talk podcast. I'm Hazel, your host, and I can't believe this podcast has been around for over four years now. We are probably not the most prolific podcasters, but I believe we've been consistent and prioritized quality over quantity. Over the years, we've interviewed some of the most well-known tinnitus experts and focused particularly on the science behind tinnitus. Today, we have a special treat for you because we're revisiting with the very first guest of the podcast, Dr. Joseph Rauschecker. He's a well-known tinnitus researcher, a neuroscientist, and as far as I know, the only person to ever have delivered a TED Talk on tinnitus, which is, by the way, very well worth viewing on YouTube. When I first spoke to Joseph, and you can go back and listen to this in episode one of the Tinnitus Talk podcast, it's still very interesting content today, he explained his theory of how tinnitus arises in the brain. He calls it the gating theory, because it's based on the idea that people with tinnitus lack a mechanism, or a gate, so to speak, to filter out neural noise from the auditory system. It's still one of the predominant theories today. In this episode, which was recorded in person by yours truly at Dr. Rauschecker's office in Georgetown University, Washington, D.C., we speak about why he still believes his theory to be true, how this could be translated into treatments, why he thinks we should focus a lot more on testing existing drugs that might work for tinnitus rather than developing new ones, how tinnitus and sleep are related, what he thinks of psychological approaches to tinnitus, why animal models on tinnitus often fail, and lots more. Just a reminder that if you value our work, you can support us through Patreon. Our work is volunteer-based, so your donation will go directly to covering our expenses. Just go to moretinnitustalk.com to find out more. And now, I proudly present the interview that I recorded while visiting Dr. Joseph Rauschecker. So, Joseph, thank you for talking to me again. Pleasure. We're here in um, Georgetown, uh, where you work. Uh, in fact, we're in your office, so thank you for welcoming me here. Yeah, I'm really glad that you made it all the way from... Uh, Europe and for, yeah. well, from Aero is uh, I think where you're coming from. Exactly, right yeah. I was at the Aero in yeah. uh, in Florida. Yeah, and so um, that's not too far away. No, not still, too far. No, in, the, in the global scale, not too far. Yeah, it takes it takes an effort, and thanks thanks very much for that. Yeah. So um, my interest, as you remember, in, in tinnitus began a, a long time ago. You know, it was the uh, yeah, Pavel Yastrebov and Jim Snow who ran the the uh, tinnitus research consortium who kind of recruited me uh, because I had written an article about neuroplasticity in, in TINS. I think it was 1999, so a long time ago. And, and I was becoming interested in tinnitus as a form of plasticity, reorganization of the brain. So m more for basic science reasons, but of course mm -hmm. I realized that there was a lot of potential in, in, ter in clinical terms as well. And then and then I actually started to have tinnitus myself. So that, that's another, another yeah, your interest motivation. Kind of changed. Yes, yes. Yeah. I, yeah. I never got it re really bad. You know, it's it's still there and it's kind of a mild form off and on. And, and the off and on thing has always interested me. And, and that has really led to the theory that, that we've uh, developed that, you know, tinnitus is not always there. If it was just a 
a sort of uh, lesion-induced plasticity, as I kind of uh, called it at the time, you know, which has been described in a number of paradigms in monkeys and in other animal models, uh, where the, the brain reorganizes as a, as a function of, uh, you know, deprivation and, and, and the plasticity. Um, if that was the only uh, cause of it, then it should should be fairly stable. You know, it should always be there and should always come about when people have hearing loss, for example. But that's not the case. Only a certain subset of people actually get tinnitus when they have hearing loss. But, but I mean, it is definitely related to hearing loss. There's, there's no question about that. But we think it's not the only reason. There's got to be some something else happening in the brain that is sort of a gating mechanism that allows the um, the hearing loss to, to to cause the tinnitus and you know determines also maybe what you know how, how bad it is but but there's this other fact and we did these studies in the uh, late well it was 2010 I think when uh, when we got the paper in neuron that that was kind of a breakthrough where we developed a whole theory on what's going on. And then we also found some experimental evidence it was published the following year, also in Neuron, uh, where, where we showed that particular brain regions are also changed uh, when people have tinnitus, severe tinnitus. And, and those regions are in the limbic system, uh, ventromedial prefrontal cortex, um, subgenual, region um, which is known for causing depression or being involved in depression and and that kind of opened this whole door of a of a new uh, um, attack on on that disorder and and uh, certainly you know you could call uh, a tinnitus in a, in a way is a mood disorder as, as depression is to some extent and, and it changed the, the equation in the sense that some people in, were aware of that. They knew about all these, but they thought this was the consequence of the tinnitus. If you, if you have this kind of nasty noise in your ear all the time, of course you would get depressed. That was the logic. And we kind of turned the argument around and said, well, maybe what if, if both of these factors are contributing? And it's not a, a really causal relationship in one way or another. But it is somehow the combination of the two factors, the hearing loss and the change in the limbic system that gives you that, um, that disorder. Now, in the, in the meantime, the field has moved on and there's a now clear distinction between tinnitus and tinnitus distress. So there was a, a sort of consensus article that I'm also an author of, uh, Bertolt Langut and, and, uh, Dick Derrida, I think put this together with a, a large number of authors. And we kind of agreed that this is really something one has to distinguish. Some people have tinnitus and they're not bothered by it at all. You know, they couldn't care less. And this kind of buzzing noise in their ear, but otherwise they, they live a normal life, whereas others are very severely distressed and they're on the, on the verge of suicide. And, you know, so, so we have these two extremes and it is really the uh, bother that we have to address and that we have to understand. And that's where I think we are on the right track and we've done imaging studies now that you know about and that we've talked about last time. And, um, and we're continuing those studies. This is still our main tool to to dissect the brain and say, you know, this is where 
something as unusual, and this is something that may change in in chronic tinnitus. So, um, I mean, I don't know. This yeah. was sort of the summary that, that you wanted me summary. to give. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, but, so so taking a step back, uh, I think, and and people can listen to episode one of the Tinnitus Talk podcast if they want the details. But your your theory has for a long time been just to oversimplify it a lot, right? There's uh, there's a noise coming, a signal coming from the auditory pathway, from the lower levels of the auditory pathway, which is typically caused by hearing loss, but there could be some other type of injury. And then in most people, that noise wouldn't be picked up by the higher brain region, so you wouldn't consciously hear it. But your theory is that in people with tinnitus, this gating mechanism, this, whatever it is that filters the tinnitus out from reaching the conscious levels of the brain, that uh, mechanism is broken in people with tinnitus. I think yeah. that was your thing. To put it in layman's terms, that's that in, was your in a nutshell, that's yeah, exactly yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. And and the hope was that we could find, uh, you know, pin down that exact cause, uh, uh, that that deficit that happens in the limbic region in the skating system, and and then you know fix it in people with tinnitus. You know, turn the knob a little bit, and then. It would disappear. That's sort of the, the dream that we're still dreaming, and it's not yeah. uh, uh, it hasn't changed that much in terms of, uh, of of theory. I think it's the same. Yeah, still you still you still generally hold by this theory, right? Has it yeah. evolved in the past few years? Uh, well, you know, we we've done as I said, we've done more imaging studies uh, in humans and uh, are finding more details. It's become more refined. There are other brain regions now that we can add to the list. Um, so, so far in the old studies, we had the nucleus accumbens as a very prominent region as part of the uh, striatum, the ventral striatum that, uh, is, uh, you know, important for mood regulation and stuff like this. Uh, and then there's the, um, you know, a, a number of other regions that, that we think is important. And, and, and that's been confirmed more or less. And, uh, we've added another, we've done resting state functional connectivity studies. Which are really high resolution, and and it's not uh, it's not a, a, a difficult technique. You know, people just lie in the scanner uh, for a while and and let this. Uh, you know, they they don't do anything basically. They don't have to listen to anything. It's a resting state, and and there is you know very consistent um, a, a finding that in in tinnitus patients it looks a little different from yeah from the controls so i read one of your recent papers where you found that people with tinnitus have a higher volume of gray matter in the cortex am i saying it correctly yeah yeah right and you corrected for a lot of other things like age and hearing loss which we we know that some of the older studies yeah. in tinnitus uh, people didn't use to correct for hearing loss so it's great that that's being done um and then but even after correcting for those things you saw a clear difference between people with tinnitus and people without in terms of the volume of this gray matter. Can you talk a bit more about that and how it pertains to also your gating theory? Does it prove or disprove the theory? Yeah, that, that study that you're just uh, mentioning, that's a follow-up from uh, one of our original studies because, you know, there was uh, a need for, for revisiting this and because other people weren't able to replicate it. And I think people are actually buying more and more into it because they realize that there is something else besides the hearing loss that uh, that must be happening. And you know, there's th these daily variations that people uh, see. You know, they they're under stress, 
and the tinnitus goes up, everybody you know, knows about this. And, and so what is that? that? That's something you need to pin down and, and fix. And that, uh, some other people, like Jennifer Gans and a few others, uh, use uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, for, for example. And they're actually quite successful in fixing things like that. So mm-hmm. one could argue, okay, even if we don't understand the exact nature of the brain changes, you know, there's something, you know, that, that tells us that there are, you know, maybe what you call it, cognitive or psychological changes that you can somehow treat. And, and Jennifer makes the argument, well, you know, as long as it doesn't bother me, it doesn't really exist. So we have to learn to, uh, you know, live with it and, and say, okay, it, it, it's just a normal part of life and it's something that we shouldn't be uh, get too upset about. So, yeah. so this is a way to deal I, with it too. I have to say it's an argument I've heard more recently. You mentioned this tinnitus disorder paper that you were a co-author of and many tinnitus researchers were. Also at the ARO, I heard various tinnitus researchers talk about, well, we should focus on the tinnitus distress, not per se the tinnitus itself. I'm a little bit skeptical. Maybe you can understand from a patient perspective, uh, a little bit skeptical about that. It kind of feels like moving the goalposts a little bit, right? So, well, we weren't able to figure out this tinnitus thing, but let us then just focus on the distress aspect because that is at least something we can understand and we can treat, which I do understand. But I, I you know, you could also argue, well, we still have to fix the tinnitus itself. I agree. Um, because we cannot treat the distress in everyone. No, no, I agree with you. I, I, totally as a as a, an engineer that I'm in originally, we actually have a new center for neuroengineering where we're also interested in fixing tinnitus, mm. you know, as as engineers, you know, like like I said with this gating theory, you, you think there's something, you know, wrong and you, you, you go and, and, and take your screwdriver and fix it. You know, this is the engineering approach. And I would still like to do that, but but it is reassuring, I have to say that, uh, you know, we find these changes in the new tinnitus studies, in the resting state studies, for example, also the diffusion tensor imaging studies, um, that that are in those regions that, you know, Jennifer and others, you know, who do uh, mindfulness um, studies and so on, treatment, uh, also would would put in that same domain. You know, so, you know, in, in a way, what we're doing is trying to give mindfulness uh, treatments and mindfulness studies a, a neurophysiological basis. And, and, and I think this is where the two approaches meet, you know, that, that we are uh, saying, okay, yeah, there's something to it, apparently, to these cognitive behavioral studies and, and treatments. Um, and, and, and if we find the neurophysiological basis of those therapies, then we're in business and we're actually in, in, in a much wider sense in business because we can, uh, you know, I think it is desirable as a neurobiologist, I'm saying that, to, to find a neurobiological basis of, of these cognitive therapies. You know, I think it would, you know, maybe, maybe they don't agree with me and they say, well, as long as it works, you know, it's fine. But I, as a neurobiologist and engineer, I would say, I do need to know, you know, what is actually changing in the brain, including in tinnitus patients. So I think, you know, I both agree and disagree with you on that. I think, I think we can uh, make progress by finding neurobiological bases of these uh, forms of ther- therapies that, that work, you know, at, at least in some people. The other thing um, that I want to mention, and you encourage me to say that, is that we need animal models. 
And um, we have had one paper out since we last talked was on uh, monkeys that we uh, treated with, with salicylate. You know, salicylate causes tinnitus, reversible tinnitus in both humans and animals. And, um, and you know, we saw, we saw that it works in, in rhesus monkeys and it's reversible there. And we were able to, to test whether they actually had tinnitus by uh, uh, using a, an eye blink paradigm, you know, so there's a well-known uh, effect that um, is hasn't been used very often, unfortunately, in, in the field. But uh, people with uh, with tinnitus have a reduced threshold in in terms of eye blink, and that is true for human patients as well as for animals. And and so we published that together. We, the, the human findings and the, uh, the monkey findings confirm each other, and and I think it's a first step towards establishing a different form of animal model that could go a long way. Because you know, after all, primates are closer to us in, in terms of brain organization, and uh, there are lots of. Uh, old monkeys sitting around in, in primate colonies. I've talked to Greg Reckinson, for example, at UC Davis, the uh, California Primate Center has large uh, colonies of monkeys that are reaching the end of their lives. And, you know, it would be wonderful to, to, to do these tests on these aging primates. And, and, and I think this is another direction that I'd like to go in. Yeah, we talked about this on the podcast, I recall, because you commented that the vast majority, it's probably 99 point something percent of animal models for tinnitus were conducted on rodents and others, you know, small animals uh, that don't really have the higher brain regions or not much of it com uh, yeah. as humans do, right? So hence the, your wish to, to use primates. Uh, and maybe we should clarify also, uh, because when people think of animal testing and uh, particularly on primates, they might think that you're torturing those poor primates. Uh, from my understanding, you're doing tests that you would also do on, on exactly. humans, basically, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So the next step would be to do imaging on primates, which we can do is totally non-invasive. And, and so this is, I'm glad that you, you mentioned that as well. That's an important point. Ultimately, whether we, uh, you know, have to do invasive studies, that's a, a totally different decision and, and we'll uh, be facing that perhaps. If it uh, is worthwhile, you know, we have to get permission from the animal care and use committees and all the, you know, NIH and all those authorities. But, uh, you know, ultimately we'll, we'll see what, uh, whether we can, uh, you know, whether the imaging studies will be sufficient to clarify right. that. But all, uh, there's, there's been a lot of animal studies on rodents, um, studying supposedly the effects of tinnitus and, um, as you say, the, the nucleus accumbens, for example, is one of those nuclei that is very, very small in rodents, and that you know would profit from from a you know primate model, for example. And it's also, uh, you know, it's it's involved in in addiction, and it's uh, there's a lot of literature on that uh, that that has been collected in in uh, primates, for example. And and I think it would be would tinnitus would deserve, uh, I think, to have the same kind of models. Uh, that are probably more effective ultimately, and and are more closely related to the to the human uh, disorder. Right. So what you've done so far is, I think, develop a behavioral test of tinnitus in primates. The yeah. next step would be the MRI studies, and yeah. what would you hope to find there? 
Well, um, I mean, the time window when you do uh, salicylate studies is, of course, very short. You can only do a few, you have a few days until the, the effect goes away again. Uh, one would have to see whether one, uh, you know, needs another model for tinnitus in terms of, uh, you know, uh, loud noise exposure or something like this, which is the common cause in most cases in human tinnitus. But um, there again is the, the animal um, detection uh, argument is, is of course very important and uh, we'll have to see whether, whether this uh, will, you know, be permissible. But, but I, I think it, it should because it is for the, for the good of, uh, of mankind. You know, if we can find a, a cure for tinnitus, as I still want, this is still the goal. You know, we all want a cure for tinnitus, not just a sort of understanding of it. You know, we want to use the understanding towards developing a cure. And, and so I yeah. think if that's the, the goal, then we should also uh, consider maybe in more invasive studies in, in animals. And ultimately, of course, human clinical trials, testing treatments. Yeah. Yeah. Well, can you speculate a bit about Based on your theory, what types of treatments should work in humans? I, I think you mentioned at the time something like deep brain stimulation. Could you give us some idea of what the yeah. treatments could look like? I also mentioned that in my TED talk. You know, it was towards the very end of the TED talk. There's this uh, example of of uh, a depressed patient uh, who got uh, you know a really great relief from 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 her depression by deep brain stimulation. You kind of uh, sounds it, it's a neurosurgical intervention obviously you know so you actually have neurosurgeons this is quite invasive it, it is invasive yeah. yeah but but it's not a it's it's now a pretty well accepted and and mm. uh, uh, feasible technique and I'm actually I've been invited by a, a, a very a big and important uh, neurosurgery group in San Francisco um, who also does studies on, on speech and language with these approaches, epileptic patients. They have now a, a clinical trial on their way where they study depression, depressed patients uh, with deep brain stimulation. They have a region in the, um, um, well, not the nucleus accumbens, but it's uh, sort of related to, to these areas in the subgenual uh, uh, subcolossal area that we've also identified and and they they've seen very encouraging results and the idea is now to uh, you know stay with these patients and ask them whether they also have tinnitus there's a there's, as you all know there's a high comorbidity rate between depression and tinnitus and so we would uh, you know restrict ourselves to, to this group where there's overlap between tinnitus and depression and see whether, you know, if the, the uh, symptoms of depression get milder or get go away, the tinnitus also goes away. And that would be one sort ah. of first step. So you could use that study that's already ongoing. It's already on the way. It's already to approved. Get um, an already get yeah. a somewhat of a test for tinnitus. Um, yeah. So yeah. before they can do that, they will have to go through all the approvals, of course, to include tinnitus patients as well, but uh, I think if we sort of say th these are the same patients, but uh, they, in addition they have one of their symptoms is tinnitus, I think it should be possible to to add that on. That would that be article. really interesting to see, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Another avenue of possible treatment that you've talked about in the past is to address 
serotonin depletion because your theory was that this could be a contributing factor or cause. I'm not sure which uh, of tinnitus. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, no, I definitely can't get out of my mind because I remember that study that I read many years ago at the very beginning when I got interested in, in tinnitus and sort of was reading up on these things. There was a study, I think it was from San Diego, where they tried um, serotonin reuptake inhibitors, uh, antidepressants, in people with tinnitus. And the result was, uh, as, it, as it seemed, kind of disappointing, because there were some people that responded to this therapy, and the tinnitus got worse, got, got, got less, and, but there was also a group there where the tinnitus got worse. Right. And, you know, another group that was, uh, you know, where nothing changed. So they basically, you know, this, this study ended up in the garbage bin and, and people said, well, serotonin uh, reuptake inhibitors don't work. That's sort of the accepted um, outcome in, in the field. The tinnitus field, people don't think um, antidepressants work. But I think, you know, if you, I've talked to, to psychiatrists who, who you know work with depressed depressive patients, and they say, well, you know, look, it's actually the same thing in in our field. Antidepressants work in one third of the patients; they don't work in another third, and in one third, it actually gets worse. So it's exactly the same outcome. That's true, and that's and, funny. It's but also but it's an we... accepted treatment. This <laughs> yeah, is the main yeah. form of treatment of depression, that's and we true. don't and we don't accept it. This is ridiculous. And we've seen that, by the way, in basically all the clinical trials that have ever been done for tinnitus as well, there's never been any treatment yeah. that gives a better result than the one-third, 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 yeah. roughly. You so know. that's exactly right, and, yeah. and uh, that's very typical, and I think we have to reopen the issue and, and then work with the third where it actually works. You know, there, there are subtypes of tinnitus. That's another thing that's become clear in the last few years, and it's, it's probably even mentioned in that big paper with the, with the many authors that there is diversity and there is, there is sort of, uh, you know, different causes even, and they cause different types of tinnitus and they probably respond to different treatments. Yeah. So why not reopen the issue? And I definitely have plans to do that, but uh, there's a, a funding mechanism out there where they um, welcome sort of uh, new uses of old medicines basically and uh and i think that under that umbrella i think we can mm. we can try this again because yeah. when it's, the problem is always uh you need funding for all the things you do yeah and developing you know, and developing something new from scratch is so time consuming and expensive like you know why not just test existing medications and treatments yeah for yeah. yeah yeah off label use is very common in medicine and sometimes you get surprisingly positive results out of these uh, 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 studies. So that's that's the plan with, uh, with yeah. the serotonin. Yeah. And and then we have another study uh, planned that's uh, may, maybe I've been talking about this last time we, we, we met um, is actually also to go after these transmitters, which ultimately are like what we need to understand. In that case, it's dopamine that we are trying to study. Uh, this is in a collaboration with uh, Technik University in Munich, which is also our partner institution for the Neuroengineering Center. They have uh, uh, they're one of the few institutions in the world that have a, a PET MR scanner. We don't have one here at Georgetown, and, and you know people have 
PET CT scanners, but the CT scanner doesn't have the same resolution that as that MRIs have. So the PET MR scanner that uh, you know is now available um, is is superior to that, and uh, and we are sort of working on a grant. You know, again, you need the you need the funds for that um, to to look at the effects of lidocaine. And I'm not sure whether this I've is something we've discussed before. before. It's 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 long it's long been known that intravenously injected lidocaine gets rid of the uh, tinnitus sensation in in 70 percent of the patients. So not all of them, but but 70 percent respond positively temporarily, though. Yeah, right? and yeah. and it only uh, lasts for a few days, usually right. or yeah. hours, even sometimes. But I've seen that happen in, in myself. Have I, you tried I, it? I, I had, I, yeah, it wasn't intentional. I had, <laughs> had to get an endoscopy oh. and woke up from the endoscopy and, and my tinnitus was gone. Yeah. And so I said to myself, oh my God, I've discovered a cure for tinnitus. And, and then unfortunately came back after a couple of hours. But still, I, I sort of went back to the anesthesiologist who, who did the anesthesia and she, he said, well, you know, you, you take propofol in our, uh, anesthesia for all endoscopies in all over the world. You know, propofol is now the, the medication of choice, but propofol has the downside that it can cause enormous pain in the veins. There are pain receptors mm. in the vein. So in order to counteract the, the pain, we give lidocaine. And, and that's, you know, there's no danger. This is sort of unproblematic and we add a little bit of lidocaine and then they have no pain. And, and, and this is how it, I don't know whether this is how it was discovered. But it was 50 years ago, at least, you know, uh, was, uh, the, and there was a wave of these studies for a while for treatment. But then because it doesn't last very long, you know, people gave up on it. And but, but I think it's an incredibly interesting mechanism that one has to pursue and find out what causes this effect. And then maybe we can work on, on prolonging the effect and maybe find other drugs that, that sort of have the same effect, but where it lasts longer. So this is what we're doing in in, um, in Munich now, and hopefully we'll get some results, and I can tell you about them in our next interview. Yes, that would be nice. <laughs> so you did mention a few times, like we're trying to get funding for this uh, or for that. Uh, I, I we also had the experience when we did the podcast. I think you were trying to fundraise. I think fifty thousand or so through crowdfunding, and that turned out to be extremely difficult. Which we were not too surprised by. I, I think uh, you raised maybe something like 10,000, which mm. I think a lot of that came th through the podcast, actually. So I'm happy about that we were, you know, able to contribute in that sense. But yeah, it, it just kind of demonstrated once again how difficult it is to raise funding for tinnitus, uh, whether it's through the general public, like the example I mentioned, or through getting grants, which you're trying to do. Um, has anything sort of shifted in the past few years? Are you more optimistic now? Um, well, I mean, there is a lot of uh, fundraising for aging studies. Uh, you know, the, the, most of the rich people are getting older. And, um, uh, you know, so there are, in, especially in the United States, there are some incredibly rich individuals. And they are also, you know, sometimes very willing to to support research and and we are very grateful for that and so our fundraising campaign is has just started for a new center 
And Tinnitus is actually uh, at the core of, of this fundraising. So we hope that we will be successful. And, uh, you know, tinnitus is definitely an aging problem as well. If you look at the numbers, sort of in the textbooks, you read 10, 10 to 15% of people have tinnitus. But if you look at uh, age, you know, older people, age 65 and older, this number goes up to 45%. You know, so it's, it's, it's actually wrong to cite the 10%. Uh, it, it, it sort of belittles the, the, the disorder in terms of numbers. If you take the, the older segment of the population, it's, it's almost half of the people they are having. So if they get bothered by their tinnitus, they should uh, try to do something about it and, and support research on tinnitus. So we're hoping to, to uh, you know, convince people that, that this is worthwhile to... And, and I think it's it's also a disorder that is not just uh, you know the, it, it is it is more than just the tinnitus. There's uh, other um, you know sort of very pervasive disorders that uh, fall under the same rubric of uh, gating um, mechanisms that are are no longer working. Chronic pain, for example, is, mm -hmm. is is incredibly pervasive, and it's just when at NIH um, there are different institutes. I don't know. This may not sound relevant, but it is for the funding issue. There is uh, the NIDCD, the Deafness Institute, yes. that, that is, you know, asked and is supposed to to fund most of the tinnitus work. But they're a very small institute, whereas uh, pain studies are uh, supported by the Neurological Institute, and they are one of the biggest institutes of NIH. So if one could get those guys interested in it, I think we would. Uh, uh, be able to to maybe uh, raise more funds. Uh, there's also if if one buys into the idea that there's a you know mood disorder behind some of these tinnitus cases, one could get the uh, National Institute of Mental Health interested. This is a, also this is the second largest. Uh, but whenever I go there, they say, "Well, uh, this is a deafness." Right, that you talked it's about that before. Story. They say, "Oh no, it's it's hearing." Yeah, but it, it's not just hearing; and it's very emotive. So it's a very bureaucratic uh, obstacle that one is sometimes facing. You know, that who who can fund and who cannot fund these kinds of studies. So well, I think we have to become more more uh, savvy in terms of making our argument and say, well, you know, it is mostly, you know, it's, it's not in the ear, we know that, but it is a hearing disorder, but it also has other aspects that, that could be transferred towards, towards other disorders. And so um, we'll see. I, I think it's, it's very important that, that the work that you do and sort of your, your uh, uh, make, making the talking about this disorder, you know, more wide widely known, uh, I think, is very important.